0: Hi everyone, my name is Natalie, I'm from the Community Legal Education team at Legal Aid New South Wales. Welcome to our Law for Community Workers podcast. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we are recording on today. I am on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present, and also acknowledge Aboriginal people as the first educators on this land. Today, we're talking about some recent changes to care and protection law in New South Wales, a really important topic for many community workers and one that we often get requests for. To tell us about these changes, we're joined by two family lawyers, Claudia and Sarah. Welcome. Can you please introduce yourselves to our audience? Over to you first, Sarah.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name's Sarah, I'm a Solicitor with Legal Aid in Newcastle. I'm broadcasting to you today from the lands of the Iwabakal and my peoples. Hi, my name is
2: Claudia, I'm um, from the Newcastle family litigation team. Um, as part of that team, we work in um, care and protection law, as well as um, family court matters and helping parents reach parenting agreements. Today I'm broadcasting from the Iwabakal Nation on the lands of the Gadigal people Probably my favourite aspect of the work that we do is working with the clients um, and helping them to resolve what are sometimes complex and multifaceted issues that they experience that are not purely legal and are often intertwined with their social um, circumstances. So um, as part of that, we work closely with community workers and um, that is something that I really enjoy as part of the work as well.
0: Today we're going to be talking about some recent changes to care and protection law. For those that are newer to this area, maybe first can you start by explaining what do we mean by care and protection?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Natalie. This was something that I was pretty uncertain about when I actually started as a solicitor, so um, I think it's really important to get that clear from the beginning. Child protection law is about the laws that deal with making sure that children are safe and well cared for. It covers matters like what happens when there are concerns that children are at risk, as well as the work that needs to be done to keep children within families and safe. Um, It also touches on when children should be removed from their family and how they'll be cared for if that happens. And if possible, the work that needs to be done to have those children returned to their families. It's just important to note that each state and territory has their own child and protection laws. In New South Wales, our law is the Children and Young Persons Care and Protection Act. And the agency that deals with care and protection in New South Wales is called Department of Communities and Justice, and its abbreviation is DCJ. Sometimes it's referred to as DOCS or FACTS, and they're just previous names that the department has held.
0: Thanks for pointing that out, Claudia, because sometimes we do get people listening who live and work in other states and territories, so the laws in there will be different.
2: That's right, Natalie.
0: So what we're talking about today in this podcast is what's new and what's changed in care and protection law in New South Wales. So can you please start by explaining what is new? And I understand an important date was the 15th of November, 2023. So what's changed from that date?
2: Absolutely, Natalie. So there has been quite a significant changes within the space. And from the 15th of November, these changes um, have taken effect. So reforms to the Care and Protection Act. Some of these reforms and probably the most relevant ones for community workers is a provision about active efforts. So I don't want to get too bogged down in the legalese of it all, but it's a provision that holds the department accountable to ensure that active efforts are made before proceedings are brought to the court and to um, prevent removal of children from their families. Um, And also, if they have been removed, active efforts of working with families to restore or children back to their families. There's some other amendments too. Sarah, If you want to speak to that?
1: Absolutely, Claudia. So another important provision and one that commenced pretty straight away, it was in November 2022. And something I found that's quite important for clients when we've been working with them, it was in relation to a presumption that applied to families where children had been removed previously. So since November of 2022, this presumption it's still relevant consideration for the court, but it no longer presumes that a parent is incapable of providing appropriate care for their child. So what this does is again puts the onus back on the Department of Communities and Justice to show what casework they're doing in relation to each child and not removing children on the presumption of that it simply happened in the past.
0: So Sarah, in the past, you would hear stories about babies being removed from hospital because a parent had children removed in the past. So that
1: doesn't happen anymore? So the change is, is that the presumption is not showing that parents are having to prove to DCJ that now they're in an appropriate position to care for that child. What it's doing is it's sort of readjusting the casework that DCJ should be doing for that family to sort of treat that pregnancy the same as it's a first pregnancy. So, those families should still be given the same opportunities to be referred for early intervention services and be supported with a view to family preservation. Evidence of prior removal will still be relevant for Children's Court proceedings, but it doesn't determine what the final outcome should be in future proceedings.
0: The Family is Culture Review report was released back in 2019. It was an independent review of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. Can you talk a little bit about that report or that review and what it was seeking to find out?
2: I can speak to that, Natalie. The Families and Culture, Families Culture Review and the um, subsequent report was a really significant um, report within the care and protection space. Um, And it's really been the impetus for a lot of these reforms that we talk about today. So um, I think it's a really good idea that we just give you a brief overview about it. So at the time, um, New South Wales had and unfortunately continues to have a disproportionate um, and increasing number of Aboriginal children and young people in out of home care. So in 2016, to examine why the New South Wales government organised this Families is Culture independent review, um, which led to the report. So the review looked at the individual circumstances of 1,153 Aboriginal children and young people who entered out of home care in New South Wales between 1 July 2015 and 30 June 2016. So while that was the main focus, it also looked more broadly at the impact of case management systems and policies within DCJ and how these practices are impacting Aboriginal children, young people and their families. It also looked at The level of involvement of um, children and families as well as Aboriginal communities and the community service sector in decision making for Aboriginal children and young people in out-of-home care. So this report was released in 2019 and it made 126 systemic recommendations for change. I think it was about 106 of the recommendations were recommendations that were DCJ-specific. So there were other recommendations for other organisations like the Children's Court, um, Legal Aid also, uh, the Judicial Commission um, and the Office of the Children's Guardian. So that included legislative reform, um, policy and practice change.
0: And those reform recommendations apply to the whole system, not just to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people, is that right?
2: That's, that's correct, Natalie. So that it's a, a system change um, for the whole system, for all families, but there have been some specific reforms relating to Aboriginal children specifically as well. And
0: are there any particular findings that really stood out to you?
2: There are a, a lot of findings. Um, 120 it's a four, something, yeah, that's 126, yeah, 500-page <laughs> yeah, report. But I think most relevant, and I'm using the New South Wales government they categorize the recommendations and the findings into five different categories and the fourth category is findings in relation to services and supports so that's probably the most relevant for community workers and I think the most relevant is probably the focus and the shift from having that reactive things have happened we need to remove children start proceedings to more of a proactive support for families um, within the community and a greater focus on early intervention before removals. So one of the findings was that a lot of families, they have a whole wide array of issues across different areas. So housing, drug issues, perhaps mental health issues and What they really need is holistic service provision. And I think the recommendation that led to this was DCJ specific. There was a recommendation that DCJ look into creating holistic services for families. But I think community workers can kind of take that on as their own recommendation in coordinating with each other and speaking to families to see what other issues they might have and referring them on and staying in touch with the other service providers where possible. Because I find, I don't know if Sarah comes across this a lot, but a lot of my clients, they get lost in the amount of people that they're speaking to, the referrals that they've been given, um, and it all gets a bit overwhelming. So if the community workers and service providers can speak to one another, it kind of removes that that aspect of just feeling like you're being blown between people. But obviously through Laugh Bar, which Sarah will speak to um, later, there has been some more recommendations that have been implemented by DCJ and it's definitely um, being reflected in the reforms that had recently passed as well.
0: So you mentioned LAFPA, maybe we will go to that now. So it stands for, there's lots of acronyms in our uh, work, (laughs) the Legal Assistance for Families Partnership Agreement or LAFPA. Did you want to explain what that is and how it's changing the way things are done?
1: Yeah, I can speak to that, Natalie. So the LAFPA agreements developed between three organisations, the Department of Communities and Justice, Aboriginal Legal Service and Legal Aid New South Wales. Um, it's largely in response to a lot of the recommendations under the Family as Culture report. Because like Claudia mentioned, you know we all have a role to play in actioning these recommendations. But LAFPA basically confirms a renewed intention to work more collaboratively together and achieve better outcomes for families who come into contact with child protection services in New South Wales. The agreement is publicly available through the Legal Aid website and there will be a link provided in the show notes for any of you interested to read it for yourself. Uh, As a brief summary though, the agreement encompasses four main objectives. Uh, Number one, regular opportunities to collaborate and communicate. Number two, to prioritise early intervention work. Three, to embed the electronic provision of court applications into common practice. And four, to give precedence to alternative dispute resolution models. In practical terms, though, how this is really changing the way that we work is that it's putting obligations on senior staff across each of the organisations to actively participate in these conversations to help improve some transparency around organizational policies and procedures. Um, So I can't tell you how many times I've found the most difficult part of my job in this space is just not always understanding how DCJ operates. For example, like I find it hard to advocate for a client sometimes without understanding how their internal policies work. So I'm unable to then shift perhaps the view on those policies or or which uh, model a family is put into. So, for example, whether they're supported for restoration or whether they're not supported for restoration. It's just not clear to us sometimes how those decisions are made, who's approved for funding and who gets denied.
0: I'm just going to ask yeah. you, when you say restoration in, in the care space, that means for a child to be returned to their family, their parents?
1: Correct. So, in it, that can either be to both parents or it can be to either parent independent of the other parent. I can confirm things are beginning to change for us internally, but it is still a long road ahead and there's still so much more to learn and improve on. I can confirm Legal Aid has commenced LAFPA training for all of its staff, which has continued throughout all of this year. Um, For staff to become familiar with these new expectations for DCJ and for our own organisations set out under the agreement, As it relates to families, though, the LAFPA agreement is changing the way these organisations are handling child protection matters. So it's not meant to be just business as usual. We prioritise early intervention and alternative dispute resolution. Families are then to be provided with early and regular referrals for legal advice and assistance at various critical points when dealing with DCJ. You
0: mentioned before the role of community workers in sort of supporting families and early intervention, are there any other things you think community workers can play a role in, in this area of care and protection law?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think they have quite an important role, almost one of the most important roles in this space as it relates to both child safety, but also as it relates to early intervention work with families. You know, we all understand that many families, especially Aboriginal families, have great reason not to trust child protective services. Um, And this means they may not follow recommendations to seek legal advice where these recommendations are coming from DCJ. So, community workers, I think, have a vital role to play in referring parents that they're working with to legal aid for legal advice as early as possible. If you're working with a client and you know that they're in contact with DCJ, there's no harm in providing them with our law access number, which is 1300 888 529, and letting them know they can access this service as early as possible, and there are options to children's court proceedings. Thanks for that. And
0: community workers can also refer clients to the Aboriginal Legal Service for advice on one 765 767 The ALS helps Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across New South Wales and the ACT.
1: There's also opportunities to identify and refer families you might be working with to receive additional supports from appropriate services. Again, like Claudia mentioned, that might be in relation to... um, poor mental health, drug and alcohol misuse, uh, inadequate housing, any of those sorts of concerns for DCJ, um, if you identify that a parent might need support in those areas, um, the more wraparound services that can be involved, the more limited the need for DCJ to intervene. But of course, for community workers, um, a lot of community workers do have mandatory reporting obligations. So where anyone's concerned that a child or young person is at risk, can report their concerns to DCJ through the Child Protection Helpline, um, and that's 132111. Community workers providing services to children must report any disclosures made if they have reasonable grounds to suspect that children are at risk of harm. Any reports that are made to the child protection hotline can, of course, be anonymous. You mentioned
0: that many community workers would be mandatory reporters. Uh, Did you just want to talk a little bit about lawyers' obligations around reporting?
1: Yeah, for sure. So this may come as a surprise for some, um, but lawyers don't actually have mandatory reporting obligations at all. The reason for this, of course, is that client communications with their lawyers are subject to strict confidentiality and privilege, and this includes any disclosures made about actual or suspected child abuse. Depending on perspective, I understand this can be viewed as a negative or a positive, especially where we might have such intimate information about such matters. But the importance of maintaining confidentiality, especially in this space, is that it enables clients to be open and frank in their discussions about what are usually some very traumatic family circumstances that they're experiencing. Of course, as a lawyer engaged in this space, child safety is always the first thing on my mind because that's the priority set out under the law. But within the solicitor's conduct rules, which we are also um, required to follow, is that I can't mislead the court. So for example, if a parent I represent makes disclosures to me about abusing children or more often abusing drugs and alcohol, uh, I can't mislead the court to believe my client is not doing those things. Um, And if they, of course, wanted me to do that, I would need to withdraw from representing them. So I hope this answers that question, makes things a little clearer.
0: Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Sarah or Claudia, can you please explain a bit more about how will these amendments work in
2: practice? That's a really great question and I think it would be really useful for community workers to know how it would work in practice and um, what their role can be in particular scenarios. So we've put out a um, scenario from the Family is Culture report It is anonymised and it is based on a true story Um, and we can just read it out and then perhaps go through and point out some of the points where these reforms will take effect and things might have played out a bit differently for this family. So S was removed at birth because of concerns about her parents' drug use, homelessness and concerns that her father was violent towards her mother. However, prior to S's birth and subsequent removal, FACS, as it was known then, did not attempt any early intervention work with S's parents despite concerns being reported about the unborn baby and facts being aware that S had two older siblings who were already in long-term care. Although the file was allocated to a caseworker for a short period of time it was closed on the basis that S's parents could not be located although there were limited records of the efforts that were made to locate them. Approximately one week before her birth, S's parents obtained stable housing. Further, S's paternal grandmother and aunt both indicated that they were willing to help obtain provisions for the baby, and S's mother reported that she wished to attend a drug and alcohol residential rehabilitation program. Despite all this, S was removed at birth. Fax did not complete an Aboriginal consultation prior to her removal and did not involve her family in planning for her future placement. S spent approximately six months in the care of an Aboriginal foster carer while efforts were made to identify an appropriate family placement for her. So I suppose looking at that scenario some of the standout points are really at that early intervention stage. Perhaps how things would play out now um, if DCJ were working with this this family and particularly with the mother there would be some early referral for legal advice through LeftBar. and I don't know Sarah if that's a good time that we could discuss some of the legal aid options that are available in terms of the advice that we give and alternative avenues to
1: court? Yeah, for sure. So, legal aids had a look at some of their own policies and procedures to see what sort of early intervention support we can provide for parents. Um, So, in this scenario, for example, if DCJ had managed to get in contact with S's parents first, and of course, that would fall under the active efforts where they're DCJ would be expected to do more than just call one number that was on file and close the file if no one answered. Um, Active efforts, of course, would involve them going to the last known address, um, speaking to any known family members to try and locate those parents, um, to then give them that early legal referral. Once they're with us, there's a couple of things we would look at doing depending on how long... Um, We have, of course, until the estimate delivery and how early we're engaged with the parents. So one of the first options we would try is to write to DCJ on the client's behalf. And this might either be simply to identify in writing what the risk concerns are alleged to be, or it may be about having DCJ confirm their position regarding like an upcoming removal in this case where Um, the child's yet to be born. Legal Aid has also developed a procedure to allow for these early intervention lawyer assisted mediations. So for families to attend with caseworkers and an independent mediator with the assistance of legal support on the spot. Um, And this was not previously available through Legal Aid. And it's important both families and the broader community are aware that we're now doing this. Um, So more families can be referred to us to see what sort of supports we can provide. There are a couple of options that we can discuss with DCJ to consider alternatives to making children's court applications, which is, of course, removal. But before removal, what we would look at are temporary agreements. So say, for example, there is the availability to do what's called temporary care agreements with DCJ. Um, They're time limited, but they can allow time for a parent, for example, to engage with some mental health counselling Or, you know, do some drug and alcohol rehabilitation if that's what's needed and have, it may be that someone else in the family is taking care of the child in that time, but you have an assurance that DCJ won't remove in that time, provided the parents staying on their path. Other alternatives, of course, that can be discussed is in situations where Uh, You know, we get quite a a variety of things that come through children's court. It's not always just that classic case where a child is removed because of risk concerns. Sometimes there's quite heartbreaking cases where children, you know, they might have quite a high level of mixed needs and within the family structure, that child can sometimes pose quite a high risk to the other children within the family Um, And those families also need to work with DCJ and consider alternatives. It's never easy, but there are unfortunately some circumstances where, you know, parents do, or parents will determine that um, the best thing they can do for their child is provide alternative care options. So in those circumstances, we can speak about doing orders by agreement through the Children's Court with DCJ. So at those mediations, we would discuss what's called the care plan. Um, And where a care plan can be agreed between DCJ and both parents that have parental responsibility for the child, that can actually be formalised through the Children's Court without having to go through the formal removal process. Um, And I do just want to say one of the biggest differences in in trying to avoid Children's Court uh, proceedings is that at that stage, you can have findings made against you in the court. Um, And those things are quite hard to come back from at a later stage. So, for example, um, you know, if you want to look at appealing a decision or making a Section 90 application. Um, But if we can avoid those findings being made in the children's court at an early stage, uh, we can, I think, more readily look at some of these alternative options that would enable families to either stay together through alternative um, care structures Or, you know, whatever circumstances might be that suit that family most.
2: That's right. And it's really exciting because these provisions and alternatives have been available in the Act um, for quite a while. And the reality is that they haven't really been used by DCJ and the practitioners Um, But now when they bring an application at removal to the Children's Court, DCJ are going to have to show that they've considered these options um, and they've made these, they've made efforts and looked into whether they would be viable and to give reasons as to why they weren't viable in the circumstances. So I think that's really exciting to have some accountability there as well.
1: Absolutely. I think if anything, um, it kind of makes it a bit easier for us to do our jobs, to throw it back on DCJ to to say, well, look, what have you been doing in line with these new provisions um, and why haven't they been done?
2: That's right. And bringing it back to this scenario of S, permitted DCJ were able to get in contact with the parents. There would have had to be um, now some serious referrals being made and follow up on those referrals for for assistance with housing um, although that was eventually resolved as well as drug and alcohol rehabilitation programs allowing mum some time to do that program and also some assistance and support with the domestic violence issues so um, referral to some some community workers there as well. With the case of S would there
0: also be any difference now with the paternal grandmother and aunt?
1: The difference here, I think, under the new provisions and the new legislation is that all of those options should be explored firsthand. So instead of, um, like in Essa's case, that she spent six months in out of home care while efforts were made to identify family placements, that should absolutely be happening before the point of removal so that grandma, for example, in S's case, or the paternal aunt um, that were willing to care for the child could have been contacted and plans developed for the child to come into their care, and whether that might be through like a temporary care agreement that we spoke about earlier, because having those family members agree to the temporary care arrangements can sometimes bridge that gap to allow parents to satisfy DCJ that the child should stay in their care in the long term.
0: Sarah, do you have one key message for community workers that you'd like to leave us with today?
1: Yeah, I'd say don't give up. So things will never change if we just don't keep taking steps toward a better child protection system. Um, We often just hear too much about the things that go horribly wrong, or just as upsettingly, there's so much that goes wrong, we simply don't hear about. But the truth of it is any step forward is better than a step back. It will be a slow and hard walk toward improving outcomes for families in this space, but it is absolutely worth it and something that we all need to keep keep working hard towards.
0: Thank you for that. And a key message across all our Law for Community Workers podcasts is about identifying the issue And knowing where to send their clients or people they support for legal help. I I think today has been a really good way for community workers to identify issues if they're working with families, how to identify if there is a care and protection issue, and where should they be sending people for legal advice. You mentioned Law Access New South Wales before, and that phone number 1300 888 529. And also the ALS on one 765 767 There's also a page on the Legal Aid New South Wales website all about LAFPA. And there's a link in the show notes for that too.
1: Another link that we would like to provide for community workers in the show links is toward our uh, resources page. So I think it's important that a lot of community workers are aware that you can order many legal aid publications for completely free online and there's one in particular that's really important around the care and protection early intervention space. The pamphlet's called, Is DCJ Talking to You About Your Kids? And it's just a very short pamphlet that goes through some important information for parents to know and and refers them on to receive some legal advice, including the law access number as well. So in the show notes, you'll find the link for that. And of course, if anyone would like to order these resources um, to your organisation, please, we encourage you to do so so you can make more of these referrals yourself.
0: Thanks, Sarah. That's really great to know.
1: Thank you. Thank and you both. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye.
0: Thanks again to our guests and thank you for listening. If you have any feedback or ideas for podcasts, please contact us at cle at legalaid.nsw.gov.au